On today's podcast, we have Mark Shapiro. Mark's career has been a masterclass in leadership and innovation. He's a visionary president and CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays. Mark's a graduate of Princeton University, where he played center defensive tackle for the Princeton Tigers football team. From his early days in the Cleveland Indians front office to his transformative leadership with the Blue Jays, Mark's journey is a testament to his commitment to excellence. Before making his mark in Toronto, Mark was a driving force with the Cleveland Indians for over 24 years. He played a pivotal role in the organization's resurgence, leading them to multiple postseason appearances, including an incredible run to the World Series in 2016. Mark is recognized as one of the most innovative minds in baseball management. His forward thinking, strategies, emphasis on player development, and keen eye for talent have not only yielded countless wins, but also reshaped the way baseball is played and managed. And now Mark's talents are shining as brightly as ever in the heart of Toronto. As the president and CEO of the Blue Jays, he's overseen the team's resurgence, leading them back to postseason and pushing the boundaries of what's possible in today's dynamic and competitive baseball landscape. In this episode, we'll delve deep into the life and career of Mark, exploring the visionary leadership that has made him one of the most celebrated figures in baseball. From his early days as an intern to his transformation of two-storied franchises, we'll discuss all things leadership, talent, and culture. I hope you enjoy. Mark Shapiro, welcome to the Accelerating Excellence podcast. Thanks, James. Great to be with you. You've, you've had this incredible career, still going strong. I mean, baseball, when was the first moment that the concept of pursuing a career in this space came to mind for you? That's a great question. Um, I, I'm not one of those people that it was necessarily a calling. Um, you know, I think it was more in the search, you know, and the search probably had a, a journey of two roles right out of university that were not the right roles for me. And, and I always when I reflect back and try to learn and think about what I can pass on to, you know, to a younger generation that I'm talking to, I think it was less about the work and more about the leaders and the culture and alignment. Um, so I, you know, I, I always smile and laugh. I had those leaders been different, had those cultures been different. My career track may have been totally different. They weren't James and I disconnected. And so I sought out and sought to search. And I think baseball was part of the fabric of my, you know, youth. It was, it was part of the connection, certainly to my father, but to my family in general. Um, so that thought of me being a collegiate athlete, sports having been just a part of my life, competing, being a core part of my my makeup and my nature, and then thinking about how could I combine business, leadership, and sport things that I was passionate about and love a little bit, just lucky, you know, and I think there's, there's some luck, you know, in all successful paths. Uh, but that's what, you know, sought me on a path, to try to figure out, well, maybe baseball could be that. And then I had a per chance where I went to visit my dad um, and I met a bunch of major league executives. And of course, at 23 years old, I was like, I want to do that. Uh, and so I just, I wrote the, you know, the resume and cover letters in 1991, uh, got mostly no responses and sought out on a two-year pursuit to try to get a job in baseball. And when you say, I want to do that, was there anything specific that jumped out at you? No, but when I interviewed with the Cleveland Indians at that time, the Cleveland Guardians, um, 
it, it was a, a realization that the two leaders there who I spent my time with and interview with, I want to wake up and work with them. You know, I want to work in an environment. I want to try to work to achieve the vision that they so, you know, clearly and romantically and passionately outlined because they were the worst team in all of baseball at that point when I interviewed and they had this plan, this vision to move into a new stadium to become one of the best teams. And I got to be part of a team that for seven straight years was a championship caliber team uh, built, you know, with the vision and the plan and the, uh, of those two architects, John Hart and Dan O'Dowd. So I think, you know, that moment was, that looks like a cool job. And that looks like a job that I could combine the things I'm passionate about sport, competing leadership business. But when I really broke down and said, that's who I want to work for and where it was more about who, and it was more about what their vision was and, and just being confident that I could find my way doing that. But, but it was a little bit of a leap, you know, going to Cleveland, Ohio, no connection there. Um, packing up a U-Haul truck the day after Christmas in 1991 with my little brother and driving from New York city where I was working, you know, in a, as a analyst for a big retail firm and just going and working in sport with no title, a cut in pay. Um, but I'll tell you what, from that first day I woke up, it was an affirmation of this is where I should be. And this is what I should be doing. Brilliant. That's amazing to hear. I mean, what do you think are the, are the strengths that you had that enabled you to excel? Because it's one thing capitalizing on the opportunity, which you sort of humbly, you know, you talk about luck, but then you also talk about, you know, you're reaching out to these people, you got given the opportunity, but what enabled you to sort of capitalize on it and make a dent? Because these people don't waste their time, right? If yeah. you're taking the cut, they'll, they'll get shot of you. It, you know, it might be a polite way, but they don't tolerate mediocrity. I think back a lot on that, you know, because you, I think you, you get to a certain juncture of your life and your career and you kind of reflect, you know, and, and I, like I said, part of it is certainly luck that got me to this point, you know, chance meetings and opportunities. Um, but, you know, what is my superpower? What are my strengths? Um, I think if you had gone back and look at me in, in high school and grade school, I wasn't a person that was preordained like, oh, Mark Shapiro, he's going to be a special leader you wouldn't have said that you would have said oh he's a bright guy he's talented he's friendly but i didn't stand out in any way and at university with the top quarter percent of students in the world at princeton i certainly didn't stand out there you know but i think when i look back james at my path and i look back at the 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 common threads that led me to succeed in the different environments that i've been in uh, resilience, perseverance, toughness, you know, I, I'm not easy. I can be knocked down, but I always get back up. So I had that long-term pursuit, things that we didn't know were that grit, grit didn't exist, you know, and, you know, when I was, when I was in my twenties and thirties, but certainly that perseverance, that long-term focus, that ability to take a long-term goal and work and chip away at it. Discipline has always been a core attribute of how I live my life. And I think something that's enabled me to bridge the gap between people that may have more innate a talent than me. So perseverance, curiosity, discipline, toughness in some way, those things probably enabled me to bridge the gap between people that were more naturally talented or innately talented than me. And in the context of your career at that point at Cleveland, what were the most important things to you in the in the context of that career and the opportunity you're going to pursue? Yeah, 
I mean, very simply at 24 years old, I, I had two basic internal benchmarks for myself that every single thing that was assigned to me, I would do better and faster than my bosses expected. That was it. I was like, if I do that, that I would get more opportunity. I would get increased, you know, and I think, and I, again, I, looking back, that demonstrated to the people that I worked for that one, I had high standards. And that was an incredible gift from growing up environments where I just had to hold my own, but by holding my own with some incredibly smart, talented, learning focused people, I elevated my own standards. So I had high standards and expectations for myself, higher than they would have for me. And two was kind of a sense of urgency, which I think when you're working for someone demonstrates that what you're doing is important to you. And it gives them the confidence to give you more. Um, and I always kind of lived by my dad telling me that my dad never was one of those people that said, you need to do get good grades, just said, hey, the better you do, the more opportunities, and more options you'll have. And life is a series of creating choices for yourself. And the more choices you have, the happier you're going to be. Now, when I look back, it's hard for me not to, it's hard for me to ignore the fact that I was incredibly fortunate, a white male, you know, that not everybody has the, the great fortune to be able to just make that statement, right? Like some of us are certainly in a more blessed position to, to be able to make that statement. But I felt like, um, you know, I was just creating opportunities and options and that the better I job I did, you know, the higher quality and the more urgency I demonstrated and the more importance and the value that I added, the more opportunity I was going to get to get to do more. And I wasn't concerned with title. I wasn't concerned with compensation. I wasn't concerned concerned with accelerating my career on a certain time frame, but I did want to grow. I did want to learn. I did want to develop. I did want to take on more responsibility. And I think very early on, I did want to lead. That was important to me. And, and so at Cleveland, you talked about that sort of seven year journey. What were the, what were the big lessons you learned in that sort of, you know, in at the deep end and then learning with these, these great individuals around you? What, what... Yeah, I think, you know, from I ended up being there 24 years in a variety of roles, you know, right. it's pretty remarkable in baseball. But um, I think from from those two gentlemen, the two things I learned were just the impact of empowerment. You know, I was the beneficiary of being empowered and what belief can do for a young, talented person. And when you feel that sense of someone believes in you and is empowering you, um, I've I've sought to pay that forward throughout my career because I was the beneficiary of John and Dan believing so strongly, which <clears throat> to me, <clears throat> again, now we have all these different labels, imposter syndrome. I didn't understand why. To me, I was like, what do they see in me? You know, what is it? I hadn't done anything exceptional. I was just a young person, but I had ideas and to transform our player development system, for instance, to kind of look at a different way of developing players. And John was like, yeah, you're a guy. Go, I got your back. Do that. You know, but it was it was it didn't make any sense for someone 24, 25 years old to kind of reframe the way a group of people thought about player development that have been doing it for their whole life for 20, 30 years. And that belief and that empowerment is something that was incredibly strong. And Dan 
you know, really modeled the discipline that I talked about earlier. He was as he is as disciplined and as competitive of a human being as you could ever imagine. And so whether it was waking up at 5 a.m. to get a workout in uh, or the way he organized his day, you know, that 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 learning and understanding that discipline really does create so much opportunity in your day from a time perspective, um, from a work capacity perspective from a competitive perspective that it can really be an advantage. Brilliant. And, and in terms of player development, obviously your, your role in, in baseball across the years been, has been broad, but player development at, at that point in time, was that something that was sort of, you got chucked at, or was it something you're like, Hey, I like that. And I think I can have a go at that. Yeah, no, it was, it was I was purely, um, I was, I was literally guided there by Dan, by Dan O'Dowd. We were growing rapidly. We were a tiny front office. He basically had told me like, listen, you've been working on some of the most glamorous sides of the business. You've been working on, I also was doing some not very glamorous things like picking guys up from the airport and pulling off game reports. But I had been working on contract preparation and analysis and um, trades and a lot of the, the background work that goes into transactions. And Dan said, you're working in the very romantic, sexy side of the business, but you need to have a core foundation of something that you build your career upon. And he was, uh, at that point, both GM and the director of player development. We were growing fast and we needed someone full-time overseeing player development. And again, it was a little bit nonsensical to assume I could do that and lead people who were twice my age with decades of experience in uniform and, and very different. But um, he said, I want you to you know, move into player development and lead that area. <clears throat> and, and it was, and to this day remains the area of the business that I'm most passionate about because I, and you and I share this passion because it's not, it's not just player development, it's human performance. Right. And it's a, it's that obsessive thought on, you know, what can lead human beings regardless of, of any field to bridge that gap between their potential and their performance most frequently? And how do you think about holistic development of the player mentally, physically, and fundamentally, not just one area? And at that point in time, James, we're talking, you know, 30 years ago, the game was largely just focused on the fundamental side. There weren't a lot of resources being deployed uh, to the to the mental side or the physical side, even believe it or not, the strength, you know, the strength conditioning. We certainly didn't have high performance areas thinking about nutrition and sleep and hydration and recovery. And those those words didn't exist in our vocabulary. Uh, I had some basic understanding that the nutrition that we were providing players was a disadvantage. And there was an opportunity to beat people if we framed those kinds of things. And so uh, but it, it, it would be it was so rudimentary <clears throat> it would be hard for you to believe how we fed players and you know prepared players to play and our lack of knowledge and insight into the very basic components of recovery and um, so quickly as I learned more it was like okay there's opportunity here that we've got to get people in a game that's resistant to change to be open-minded to it so the leadership component was a reality but there was huge opportunity to do things differently and do them better. And at the core for me was engage and involve the players in the process, not do it to them, but, you know, really engage them and start to talk to them about taking ownership and accountability of their own development. And, and how do you do that um, in terms of, 
I've I've worked in some environments where I guess how do I put this? People are reluctant to to change because to them they're you know like well I'm up here I'm doing the job I've been doing it at the highest level I don't need this I did I got to this you know to to where I'm at with 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 doing X Y Z Mars bars and cans of Coke sort of thing. How do you uh, lead those hard headed sort of alpha type personalities? Not easily. It's not, it's not, you know, I, I look back and laugh and think about some of the days that I was in a room leading guys that were in uniform and had been in uniform for 30, 40 years of their lives and were twice as old as I was. And, uh, but like anything in life, I had to establish credibility and earn respect and trust first, um, which meant I had to listen and understand that they had an unbelievable amount of value to pass on. And ultimately, you know, try to convince them that I wasn't telling them to do a different job, but just to think about their job differently, to organize it a little bit differently. Um, and, that, and that really, for me, kind of set off on that reality that, you know, I live today as a 56 year old, which is, you know, you're, you don't have a choice. You either adapt or it's going to pass you by. If I was still doing my job the way we did our jobs in you know, the mid-1990s, I'd be long gone in the game. I've had to adapt and understand that we have so much more information to make decisions. How we make decisions is model-based now as opposed to anecdotal and gut-based decision-making. Um, there were so many biases in the way we made decisions. I think I innately understood that how much better we could be when I was framing the, and was basically more system and process back then. And then ultimately the way we made decisions, James, that has changed exponentially because of the amount of information that we generate and the way we organize it. So, um, you know, just a constant, it's an understanding that learning and adaptation is essential to be successful and then helping others to understand that as well. And, and at the core of that, you know, in our business is competing that you're competing against others. And so you're trying to get better. Absolutely. And, you know, would you say, I guess, that uh, that journey of, of bringing almost human performance from the dark ages to the high tech data, like, you know, eliminating bias, the, the sort of relentless, not leaving a, a, a stone unturned in terms of edge finding for human performance gains we're in now, was that a sort of slow, continuous improvement? Or for you, were there sort of tipping points where you felt like there were certain periods of times where there was a step change in in baseball in general, but maybe in the teams in, at Cleveland? Yeah, I mean, there were definitely step changes along the way. Um, I think just like transforming culture and transforming, you know, operations, it, it's painstaking hard work and it doesn't always feel like you're making progress and you have got to be, it gets back to those things that we talked about at the outset that what differentiates me, you know, in my career. And I think that determination uh, that not being discouraged, that focus on the long-term goals. Uh, it, it's hard to measure the progress as you're going through it. You don't always get the feedback along the way. When you start to see players succeed that you thought maybe didn't have a chance to succeed, and when they start to be able to articulate for themselves <clears throat> the value of that holistic development, the value of the mental side of their game that was developed, the impact that um, – a more detailed player plan, you know, had in their development, involving them, helping them understand, take ownership and enabling them to, you know, really own their own career as they progress from level to level. Because baseball is kind of like a curriculum, 
you know, you're going to progress through five or six different levels along the way with different instructors and different coaches and different experts. So the one common fabric is yourself and you need to know yourself. Yeah. And it, would you say there's a player that stands out as someone you think that really leveraged <clears throat> the, the the benefits that the human performance as a science and, and these processes and systems you're talking about has to offer? Now, not necessarily one in particular, because the ones that probably made the biggest impact were the ones that probably would never have made it to the major leagues without the resources oh, and yeah. tools that exist in the modern game. And But maybe they didn't have long long careers, but they got the most out of what they had. And I think, it, to me, our mission as a player development staff back then, and really is today too, was to help each player to reach his true potential mentally, physically, and fun, regardless of what that is. So a lot of times that true potential might be the double-A AA or triple-A level, which is short of the major leagues. But I wanted each, each player at the end of the day to be able to look in the mirror and do they did everything humanly possible. We provided every resource possible that we aligned on, you know, how we were going to help them get better. And they reached whatever that, whenever, when they lay their head down the pillow at the end of their career, they knew they reached that potential. Whether that potential was a 10-year major leaguer, whether it was just getting a cup of coffee in the big leagues, or whether it was falling short and being a minor league player. And then I thought, you know, and I think this is trying to be, meaningful and altruistic too hopefully we're impacting their lives as well so some of the great calls i get now are guys that have gone on to have successful careers in the business world and have said the things that we learned the discipline the systematic approach to thinking about your development the commitment to developing all facets of ourselves as human beings those things the the importance of being focused in the present not you know, not caught in the past or think or obsessing about the future. Um, those tenets are still core to successful human beings when they move on to other career. Because every single baseball player, even the ones that play in the big leagues for 15 years, are going to move on to other careers, right? They're going to, they're going to, 40 years Absolutely. old, they're going to have to take on something else in life. Absolutely. And in terms of leadership, it's, it's something you've gone on to excel in. What, What's your advice to young ambitious leaders who are perhaps just stepping into those positions where they have command or authority over a group of individuals and they're trying to take them from point A to point B in terms of achieving outcomes, which unfortunately is, well, unfortunately not, is the hard currency of performance. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. That, that's the tripwire, right? Like if you get fixated on the outcome, you're going to shortcut, you're going to undervalue human beings, you're going to, um, you're going to probably not focus on the process. Um, I, I back it up a couple steps and, and think about what that advice would be. Uh, and I would start with the awareness of self. Because if you do not have self awareness, if you are not clear you know, what your values are, what your compass is, what your framework for making decisions in your life is. Those decisions are who your partner is, you know, how you're going to lead, who you want to align with and associate with, you know, the things that are most important to you. If you're not clear and self-aware and ultimately, probably most importantly, aware of your insecurities, because what, what I've seen when the disconnect happens from leaders to people they're leading it's almost always people who are not aware of their insecurities and don't manage their insecurities. 
Every single one of us has them. It, it, I haven't met a human being that doesn't have insecurities, right? It can be your education, your upbringing, your culture, your physical appearance, whatever it is, we all have that. And so being aware of them and ensuring they don't undermine your ability to connect with people. So starting with that self-awareness and then probably moving you know, next to that, that awareness of others and being deeply empathetic and compassionate. Um, you have got to care deeply and authentically and genuinely before you can connect and lead. So self-awareness first, awareness that, that the awareness piece is just so big and it's two part, it's self and others. And the others piece is really empathy um, and connectivity. And you cannot connect, you have to connect to lead or to teach or to coach or do anything that you're helping people to be their best. And you have an, you have an inability to connect on any sustained level uh, unless you know you are deeply empathetic and caring. Uh, it's got to be it's got to be genuine. It's got to be authentic. You've got to be you've got to really want to help people to be their best. So you know we're, we've talked a little bit about that trip. You can trip up if you focus on the outcomes. You even though you want to competitively and obsessively focus on achieving and overcoming you know the challenges and, and getting those outcomes i think the core of it's got to be you've got to really want to help people be their best and you know the byproduct of that and the byproduct of really strong process and you know really good systems are you know you're ultimately going to achieve some pretty great things but you know the obsessive focus on achieving great things is more your own ego and not the, the, the focus on helping people to be their best. That's great advice. And in, in terms of creating high performance environments, you know, I think you, you would have clearly worked in organizations where that set high standards and what they expect from the professionals within them. How do you enforce high standards? I mean, discipline's a topical issue, you know, you know, how, how, how have you gone about enforcing standards or, yeah, it's a, it's a great question, but I think if you have to think about that, you're, you've already lost. You're already done. You know, I think that the identification process is where the high standards come in. Um, and again, this is a learning from when I look back at my life and think about the environments that I was dropped into, whether it was the, the Cleveland Guardians front office or whether it was Princeton University or the, you know, the family I was around, the high school, um, I was in environments of high achievers that you know, we're not necessarily articulating that they were demanding a lot of themselves, but they were driven, you know, they were driven to be the best version of themselves. They were driven to learn. They were curious. They wanted to get better every single day. They were focused on some opportunity to get better. And I think when you organically drop those people into an environment where you clearly articulate the vision, the direction you're trying to go to, the guardrails of the values are clear and articulated. They're part of the hiring process. And all those people are competitive as hell and driven to be their best. It, it, the standards happen. The expectations happen. They're holding each other accountable for high standards and themselves accountable for high standards. And those are the environments that it's so gratifying and fulfilling to work in because every single day when you go into them, you've got a chance to learn something and grow and get better. Absolutely. And you talked about their uh, selection or, you know, in terms of talent identification, I mean, at the Blue Jays, what, what, what's, if you could outline to those listening, what is the process 
that you would undertake in order to select those sort of superstars who maybe aren't quite superstars yet? You're, are you referring to, when I think about talent identification, I, I think it starts with, with the office and the people that work here, and then it goes to the sure. players because, you know, so, um, you know, in our, our hiring process, the, you know, to try to be simple about the things that I think may, might be important to focus on or differentiate us. Um, and obviously live and exist in a bunch of other major league organizations now that all have kind of the same lineage and the same understanding. It started in Cleveland where we were one of the lowest resourced and smallest market teams in all of baseball. And we had to overcome that. And no one cared about, you know, that being an excuse for us to compete with the Yankees and the Red Sox and, you know, the biggest market teams. So we knew that our culture had to be our competitive advantage. That that had you know that that had to be that we had to have a scalable competitive advantage and that was um, no inefficiency, no energy on credit and blame, um, hiring really 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 talented people without any focus on hierarchy, empowering those people and expecting those people, James, the day they got there to make us better, not to pay their dues, not to go through some you know hierarchy of like who's in charge. If you were to drop into meetings, and I think this is like something to think about you would never know who the senior people are that, you know, that the meetings were just collectively focused, obsessively and collectively focused on getting to the best decision, the best outcome, you know, the best process. And that's the only focus. So, um, you know, when we hire, we're hiring, we're looking to hire people that align with the values. So we clearly articulate the values and we are looking to hire people that make us better the day they get here. You know, not so they so they may have some skills, some experience, some background that's going to be additive, you know, that's going to complement the people that are already in place. And the hiring process is an extremely rigorous one, far more rigorous than people would expect for an entry level intern, you know, but and everybody owns that process, not just we don't outsource hiring to HR. Hiring is a process that is owned by senior leaders and by owned by everybody in the organization because you have to live with the realization that the biggest opportunity you have to impact the business today, tomorrow, and five years from now is that entry level hire. And for us to be competitive with teams that have greater resources than us, we need to realize just how important and how special those opportunities are. Every one of them is a pearl and we can't miss, you know, they're, they're essential. There are huge opportunities to impact people and impact the organization. So it, it is a, I'm not giving it credit as an extremely rigorous multi-tiered process, the hiring process. Um, and it is collectively owned by everybody. And there's an understanding of how important that is to our success now and in the future. Oh, I love that. Now, in terms of your career as a leader so far, is there a moment that stands out or perhaps a period in time where you felt like you've been demonstrating everything you've got in the locker in terms of your leadership skills and abilities. And if there is, could you perhaps talk us through that moment or period in time? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think it's obviously a sign that when you get old, people start asking you to reflect back on those, on those meaningful moments. And I'm not, I'm not a very uh, moment focused person. You know, I, I tend to, it's like, I always get that question too. What are your regrets? And, I don't really have any major regrets either. You know, I live, I think because I look at them as learning opportunities and, and, you know, like I, I don't, 
you know, I think the most important area I could have regrets or had I not focused on my time with my kids, you know, like that's the area that I didn't want to have regrets. Um, so, but there are those moments and I guess what I would call them is an affirmation, right? Like you set out as a young leader and you, you're thinking, and I think if you do want to lead, it's inevitable you do this, that when you're not leading and you think you may want to lead, you're going through every environment as a laboratory, as a learning opportunity. You're listening to every talk and every meeting a leader reads and you're thinking, oh, I disconnect from that or, oh, that resonates with me. That fits my style. That fits my, my leadership attributes. And when I get a chance, I'm going to take this piece or that piece. And you're kind of building that mosaic of what your individual leadership is going to look like from the great people that you had an opportunity to learn from. You cannot imitate any one person. If you do, it will be inauthentic. So you're trying to put piece together your authentic leadership style. And there were things that drew me to the people that I wanted to work with. And I felt were that compass I talked about earlier for the organization that I wanted to create and the people that I wanted to lead. And that was really focused around a values-driven culture that was focused around rewarding, identifying, acquiring, and building a team and rewarding players that were not just talented players, but also good teammates, good people, high character, were really people we could hold up to, to kids and say, this is someone that you want to be like. And there was a moment in 2007, after I became general manager, when we turned over the entire team um, you know, in 2002, 2003, we got to be very competitive in 2005, but fell short nature of like very small margin for error in 2006, we backslid. And then 2007, we led the major leagues in victories and we knocked the Yankees out of the playoffs in Yankee stadium, right in New York city on nice. the biggest stage in, in professional sports. And it was dead silent there. And I was looking around the locker rooms, our, our guys were celebrating. And my thoughts were kind of twofold. <clears throat> One, to all the people behind those players, right, that helped us acquire them, develop them, you know, build a team, you know, the identification, the acquisition, the development, the deployment of talent, all the people, the hundreds of people that were behind that, that the greatness that it required for us to get to that moment. And two, that we didn't compromise. That when you talked about it earlier, when, you, when you're focused on those results, it's very easy to rationalize and compromise your values because you see a talented player. We made some very tough decisions that are great case studies. We walked away from some unbelievably talented players because they didn't fit. They weren't good teammates. They were distractions. They were inefficiencies, even though they had a ton of talent. And that was a risk, a, a definitive risk, because objectively we got worse when we did it. But we... We had that group of players that outperformed objectively what they should be because they were not just talented players, but great people. So when I looked around that room and I saw Victor Martinez and Travis Hafner and CeCe Sabathia and Grady Sizemore and Casey Blake and Jake Westbrook, I can go on and on. It was an affirmation that you don't have to compromise, that you don't have to take shortcuts that you can stick to your beliefs and your values, that great players can not just be talented, but also good people and good teammates. And more than anything, and this is kind of private, that it means more when you win with those types of players than you do when you just are focused relentlessly on outcomes and just focused on talent and talent alone.
that's incredible and it's it's really reassuring to hear it's um absolutely fantastic um i guess the flip side of a peak experience is is perhaps that time where metaphorically we almost sort of get that kick in the uh kick in the underpants has there been moments like that as a leader that have really challenged you and sort of whoa how am i going to get through this yeah, I mean, those are defining moments. I think when I first became general manager and I kind of led my first set of meetings to kind of, to to think about, okay, we've got this massive challenge to we've won for seven, eight straight years, and now we have a you know we have don't have a lot of young talent internally. We have an aging roster. We've got declining revenues in the market, which was no one's fault. Um, you know, we've made trades. Um, you know, the, the team is aging and probably can't compete anymore. Okay, Mark, here's your opportunity. Deal with that. Find a way to, to win. Um, and the very first major transaction trade that I oversaw, I led that meeting and I led that process and made those decisions the way that my predecessor would have, John Hart, who was my mentor, you know. So, and in reality, one, it didn't fit the circumstance. The circumstance had changed, and I was just trying to cling to how we did it for eight years. It was successful when we needed to adapt to a new set of operating conditions and parameters, and we needed to reimagine what our organization was to be competitive. Uh, and two, I, I let it like he would have. You know, he he made he was a different background. He was a former player, coach, you know, guy that was in a uniform very different type of leader and different type of decision maker. Um, it was a bad decision um, because not because of I me mean, one, because we were, it was not clearly aligned with a strategy and a plan. It was kind of linking to the past and, but, but acknowledging the fact we had some tough changes. So it was in the middle. It wasn't decisively in one direction, uh, but mostly because our process was flawed and it wasn't a process that was going to fit an organization that I would have to lead or the circumstances that we had. And I am, I think, as we did our after action review, uh, which we didn't, again, have that word, but we, we knew to review our process and learn from it. Um, I probably think back to my assistant at that time, who's, who now is one of the most respected executives in the entire game. And you know, if, if anyone could say like their greatest mentor was an assistant, not someone who worked, they worked for it was me benefiting from Chris Antonetti and how he changed the trajectory of my career. I wouldn't still be in the game if, if Chris hadn't worked for me um, because he challenged me to be better. He challenged me to realize that we couldn't make decisions the same way. And he continued to do that for the seven years he was my assistant until I eventually, you know, made him general manager and I moved up to president. Um, and he continues to do that today to lead in that way that he's asking himself and everybody else to always think about how they can get better. So we learned from it. We got better. It was the realization that we had to acknowledge things had changed one, and we had to change as an organization, the way we made decisions and two, uh, that we needed to be decisive and move strongly in one direction and outline what that strategy was and, and it needed to be authentic to the skills of the people in place, not the people who had been in place. Understood. I mean, in terms of sustaining elite performance across time, whether you're a player, you're, you're um, uh, contributing in the organization in a different way, or you're the leader of the organization itself, it takes a lot of time and energy. Like professional sport is ruthless in terms of intensity required to, to deliver results. How do you sort of sharpen the ax as you go? Yeah, I mean... 
again, I think one of the benefits of the further I go is trying to simplify the answers to questions like that and not make them sound too complex. And I would, I guess I'd respond to you that um, sustaining it, you know, starts with valuing people and understanding how important people are um, and not getting caught up, not devaluing people because you're obsessively focused on the outcomes. And then two, and again, it's going to sound like a soft skill. It's going to sound like a less than competitive focus. But if you have a learning culture, then you are focused on improvement, perpetual improvement. And having a learning culture you know, throughout an entire organization is a scalable competitive advantage. And I say that because if every single person in the organization from player to trainer to strength coach to mental performance coach to analyst to database manager to front office executive wakes up every day thinking, how can I get, there's going to be an opportunity for me to grow, develop, learn, and improve today. And I am going to commit to getting better today. I'm going to find a way to, for myself to get better and in, and in turn help our organization get better. Then that to me is scalable competitive advantage. And we're, we're, we're never standing pat. We're always waking up and thinking about that continual improvement, growth, development. We're staying humble and open-minded. Um, and I think that if I was to think of one thing that is essential, it's to back away from you know, that noise that comes from the results that can be a small set of data can impact, you know, because it can cause emotion and momentum that leads to a bad decision, get back to a good process, a good framework for making a decision, a good system, and ensure that you are a learning-based organization, that you're humble and open-minded, and that you're focused on improving every day. Fantastic. I mean, in terms of... Um your own performance day-to-day, your own craft. Is there any specific habits, routines, or this gets done, whatever happens, and and I need it for the sake of not just performance, but for the sake of having a life. Is there anything like that for you? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, like it's always that there's been that, you know, again, it's dangerous to say always, no matter what, right? Because you start to get sure. obsessive a little bit. But I, I know that I need to have my time to exercise in the morning. You know, that routine has been, it's a core part of my discipline, you know, my physical discipline that leads to my mental discipline, um, regardless of what time I have to wake up, where I am, what it looks like, the fact that I can adapt it. Um, but it's it's kind of like a non-starter for me. It's it's like brushing my teeth. It's not a decision. I'm not saying, oh, maybe I'll work out today. It's, oh, I'm going to work out today, right? And it starts my day in a couple ways. One, it gives me a little bit of meditative time for me to focus on my breathing and, and kind of recenter myself. And two, it, it is the ultimate demonstration that there are things within my day I can control. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, a general life philosophy for me is kind of control the controllable. And I live in a world where there are tons of things that I cannot control every single day in the competitive landscape from health of a player to, you know, officiating to our competitors, to the economic landscape, to COVID, to, you know, there's tons of things. So waking up and working out every day says, I can still seize control of this and I can demonstrate this level of discipline. And then reading something, each day that's going to give me the opportunity to learn and open myself up outside of baseball, outside of my field, you know, of study. And it's usually more article than it is book, but sometimes it's book 
you know, focus as well um, from thought leaders that I res respect to philosophers uh, to something that's going to cause me to think a little bit creatively and outside of the box. And then I'm just fortunate that the people that I'm around every day, James, are people that are going to challenge me, people that are going to ensure that I get better, that they're we're tackling huge problems together and challenges together and that you know being around them is going to stimulate me to continue to learn and grow so you know that that physical activity rigorous strenuous physical activity in the morning some meditative you know application of breath work or focus around that prior to that um some reading and a moment to kind of reflect and learn a little bit at some point that's a little bit less discipline the time frame that happens and then making sure I'm interacting with others in our organization because I respect them and they're gonna they're gonna challenge me. Yeah, you can certainly tell from 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 the way you you, you talk about them. And in terms of the sport itself, baseball, I mean, there's been some sort of landmark changes that they're quite exciting for me as someone who I, I watch it intermittently. Um, unfortunately, being based in the UK is not something that I sort of yeah. make time to do. And one of the barriers actually was that, you know, it, it, games last a long time for us. We used to yeah. a 90-minute soccer match or an 80-minute rugby match. But I wondered if you could talk to those listening about some of the changes. Yeah, I mean, I'm on I'm on the on-field committee, so it's been something that I've – it's been a kind of a both an honor and, and exciting for me to work on something and it kind of helps shape the game and they help the game move to a better place. And I think, again, it gets back to one of the things that makes baseball great is the tradition uh, that it's steeped in and that the game largely hasn't changed. Whereas the other American major league sports and basketball and football and are very different games now than they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. Baseball is largely the same, just the size of the individuals might be a little different, but the game's the same. However, the world's changed and the amount of dead time that was in the game of baseball just didn't fit in a, in a community where we're not used to much dead time at all. We're used to instant gratification and, you know, picking up our phone and kind of instantly accessing everything we want to access and the ability to grow the game, which isn't important on the business side, really forced us to think about the dead time in the game, the action, the limited, the amount of time between action in the game. And that was the core problem. How can we reduce the dead time and infuse more action in the game without injuring players or hurting players? And so, um, you know, the, the pitch clock has been a core, core, you know, uh, focus on that. It took us seven years, a long time to both identify what the biggest uh, lever, the largest lever would be test it thoroughly in the minor leagues to ensure we wouldn't be doing harm or detriment to the game. Um, and then ultimately introduce it in a respectful way to our players who would cause to, to play the game differently and to feel differently. But the impact has been palpable. Our games are a half hour shorter and it's not necessarily about length. It's about action. Uh, the amount of dead times decreased, you know, markedly. So we probably pulled the biggest lever. That's the only downside. You know, the, the, the big, the, you know, the amount of change left is kind of more marginal moving forward, but it's been fun to be a part of that. It's been fun to see the the impact of that. And I think it's like you mentioned for people, for new Americans and new Canadians that are kind of coming in and, or, in, or to grow internationally, we needed to do something. Um, and um, you know, this is, we, we took away a barrier, which was trying to watch a very slow game uh, and understand what's happening. At least now there's a lot more athleticism action. You can appreciate it. Even if you, even if it's new to you. Absolutely. 
I mean, it, I guess innovation, no one gets to to sort of avoid it to some extent. And and I guess on that note, in terms of human performance in, in baseball, in elite sport in general, what do you think elite sport is going to look like five, 10 years from now? Well, I, I think it, I don't really have any idea. And that's the beauty. You know, I think I embrace that unknown. I, you know, there are so many incredibly talented people coming into the you know, the, the frontier of thinking about human performance and how to advance it, uh, whether it's what the impact of AI is and how that impacts, you know, our ability to kind of think about, make decisions, um, help people achieve, you know, their best, or whether it's the, the integration of technology um, and uh, data and analytics into every aspect of how we make decisions and develop players and identify players what I do think I, and, and what I love about baseball and sports in general is that regardless of how much data and how much analysis and analytics we have, that we are still dealing with human beings you know, as our core asset, right? They're not stocks, they're not real estate, they're not you know, certificates or paper. And when you think about human beings, the, the ultimate challenge and the ultimate excitement and the ultimate potential lies in, in how to help human beings do things they should never be able to do, how to help teams achieve a greatness that on paper they shouldn't be able to achieve. And history is full of examples where human beings perform and achieve at levels that they objectively should never perform and achieve at. And so to me, that can never be quantified. We'll never be able to quantify that. Uh, we'll be able to ensure that we are controlling the controllable. And I think that you know, is always something that I'll be you know, aware of the opportunities, you know, to continue to control and get better and contribute. Uh, but leading human beings to do great things is going to be non-quantifiable, no matter how much data analytics technology we have in the game. And the excitement to me is always, you know, what is what is the best coach look like? What does the best teacher look like? What does the best leader look like? And how can they help people achieve things they shouldn't be able to achieve? Absolutely. And I just, I, I love listening to that because I think at the heart of it with people and you look, you're working with psychological and biological function, a lot of the core principles of human performance don't really change too much across time. It's just about accelerating the bits around the edge that can help you learn more about the individual to perhaps expedite your ability to, 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 to optimize or assist that individual. Yeah. You're, you're, you're understanding it better, but you're not, you're not fundamentally doing anything different. And I think yeah. probably what led people to be successful 500 years ago are still the same attributes, characteristics, and traits that lead for elite, that lead to elite performers. Now the, the better understanding of it helps more helps us get more people to achieve it. Maybe. Yeah. And, and to democratize access to it and, and hopefully shift yes. the baseline for everyone. Right. Um, in terms of your career, what's what's most important to you at this stage of your career? I can tell how much you care about people. Um, yeah. I think, you know, what's most important to me is that I continue to learn and grow and develop and encourage others around me to learn and grow and develop, uh, and that I continue to help nurture and develop the leaders, you know, future leaders of, of baseball and business and other, you know, and other event, other areas of life that, you know, I can give back by helping others do great things. I don't need to be 
necessarily viewed or in a position where I'm pulling strings and making decisions. I don't think that's necessarily where my greatest strengths lie, but, but helping build organizations that, you know, encourage people to be their best, uh, to continue to lead others and, and expect and, and ensure others, you know, achieve their goals. And, uh, that, again, I think for me to wake up every day and think about the Toronto Blue Jays being the best place to work and the best place to play and all the little things that are behind that, James, within that, is, is, is meaning and purpose and fulfillment for me enough for to last me for a while. And when it doesn't, you know, it'll be something else, growth and development and leadership focused in another arena and I'll go do it someplace else. It's, it's so uh, lovely to hear. And in terms of the, the Blue Jays, I mean, this sounds like there's so much exciting stuff going on at, at the moment. I mean, I wondered if you could share some of the, I guess what you're most excited about in terms of the team and the organization over the next few years. Yeah, we've, we've undertaken a, a, a lot of large infrastructure projects over the last eight years. Some of them are, are resource and facility, you know, focused. We built a giant uh, state-of-the-art training and development center in Dunedin, Florida, which is best in class. And if you ever get a chance to visit, it's an incredible place, to, you know, to foster and think about how design can impact culture, performance, values. Uh, and, and help players be the best they can be in, in every area. Um, we're doing the same thing here in Toronto with a massive $350 million um, renovation of our stadium here, um, both from a fan experience perspective and a player experience, uh, player facility perspective here that'll be complete uh, in sometime during next the next season. And obviously we've built out all the resources here across the, you know, the performance areas and the analytics areas and the front office areas and uh, the decision-making processes, you know, all those things and, and infuse the value. So those things are all in place. We built a, a very talented major league team that's right in the heart of its competitive uh, cycle right now. So we're, we're ultimately, you know, the biggest piece left for us is to, to compete to win a world championship. And that's what we're seeking to do. And we'll continue to do until this competitive window closes. And then, you know, the process will lead us to the next competitive window with the next group of players. So, um, yeah, I'm focused on continuing to ensure we have incredibly talented, aligned, values-driven people leading that organization and that we continue to, to get better and um, we control everything we can control each day. Brilliant. And I just, I, I want to ask you this question because I think people will love to hear it. I know you've almost partly, we've answered it, in, in numerous ways almost throughout this conversation so far but i'm sure there are people listening uh right now who perhaps are potentially stuck in a rut um maybe there's a little bit of doubt inside them in terms of their perception of what they're capable of but deep down they they, they sort of think or believe they've got a bit more in them what would your advice be to people in that scenario yeah i think it would be that whenever you think about the big picture and you get focused on the future and kind of the progress and what are, what I need to do to be happy. And I need to get to this spot. Um, it can be one overwhelming too. It can be distracting. You can start to define it in ways that, you know, are not authentic to yourself, but really defined by others around us. We all, we all are subject to that trap, you know, of kind of letting someone else define for us what success looks like. Um, so I would get back to, you know, within the 24 hours ahead of you, you know, where, what in that cycle represents an opportunity for you to improve 
and develop and grow and learn? Um, is it simply ensuring you get a good night's sleep and that you wake up and that you do something that you know challenges you physically and that you're eating good food that you know keeps your energy level throughout the day and that you're around people who challenge you and to incur and encourage you to learn and develop and grow and be curious and ask questions instead of telling you what to do or uh, telling yourself what to do and if you start by the little things that are focused on you being the best version of yourself as a human being and of a person and you commit on a disciplined level to doing those things every day, you'll look up and you'll continue to grow and get better. But when you start fixating on needing to reach certain uh, markers that are actually defined by someone else other than yourself, because they delineate someone else's definition of success, it leads to a disconnect, it leads to discordance, it leads to unhappiness and a lack of fulfillment. So surround yourself with people that are like-minded, you know, that share a set of values, that share a philosophy, do the little things within your sphere of control instead of fixating on all the little things that you can't control, focus on what you can control and commit to, to growth development, you know, both physically, mentally, and, you know, and, and your, and your skill, whatever business you're in. That's fantastic advice. Thank you for sharing that with us. I just wanted to sort of wrap up our conversation with some quick fire questions that and I'm really okay. intrigued to hear your answers to these. Now, the first one is, Greatest team of all time. <laughs> Greatest team of all time. I think probably have to go back to those that, you know, since I watched that, the last dance, those Chicago Bulls teams yeah. and, you know, that, that combination of a coach that was philosophical and thoughtful about how to get the most out of his talent and, and the talent that was generational, you know, historical, you know, and Michael Jordan that just transformed, you know, what that game could look like. Absolutely. And then and maybe the answer's there, but greatest athlete of all time. Ooh. Yeah, I don't know that you could pinpoint one. There, there are probably so many and probably so many outside of my, you know, understanding and fields. I'd hate to do a discredit, but certainly Michael Jordan is one that, you know, Tom Brady is, you know, to me is someone worthy of, you know, consideration just because, you know, he was not heralded as a young player. He got so much out of his ability. So those, those people, and, you know, they've, they've transcended what success looks like. And leader, greatest leader of all time. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, maybe. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. What a yeah guy. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if you could come up with one, but certainly, you know, when I think about someone that, you know, was leading, but still focused on thinking about, you know, what it meant to lead and how it can impact others and not just leading for power and leading for outcomes, but also focused on being the best version of himself as a person and giving a lot of time and thought into that. You know, I, I, I think that's, you know, someone that is worthy of study and consideration and pretty incredible. And then, and there, there's no and and flawed as well. There is no leader who's not flawed, you know. Sure. And and talk about you know foundational principles transcending through time. I mean, yeah, Rose, what a guy. Uh, and now now some more sort of personal ones. But favorite movie? 
It's got to be Moneyball. Favorite Mark. movie. I, I mean, Feel the Dreams. I'll have to go <laughs> to a baseball right. movie. Yeah, but yeah, it's just like, be. you know, to me, like, it's everything beautiful about the game of baseball. It's a heartfelt movie. It's maybe not my all-time favorite, but it certainly is up there. And you obviously played actually in, in the Moneyball film. I know that's probably one that makes you cringe as it comes up, but uh, it makes me cringe. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry. I, I thought it I might slightly annoy you, but I had to bring that up. Um, another great baseball movie. Um, favorite series? Oh, The West Wing by far. You know, it, uh, not even close. Yeah. yeah. Aaron Sorkin, just the writer, the, you know, the, the characters are so rich. Um, I could watch that series over and over again. I know it's American, but I think it would transcend, um, you know, leadership, you know, decision-making human beings and their frailties, but still doing it in a laboratory of kind of, you know, great consequence and just what a great, what a timeless and great series. We're almost there. Favorite book. The one that, you know, probably meant the most to me early in my life was the Fountainhead. You know, I don't view that to be um, black and white anymore. It's more gray, but still it, it was important to me to read in my early 20s and kind of say, oh, there's some incredible thoughts within objectivism that are meaningful to me. The one that was uh, more transformational to me probably about 10 years ago was a book by an edu- by a, an education writer, Paul Tuff, called How Children Succeed, uh, Grit, Curiosity, and you know The Power of Character. I think I forget, I'm messing up the second part of the title, but How Children Succeed, which is really not just how children succeed, but it was kind of an, a holy cow moment for me that this is everything I've seen in successful people, that you know, grit, curiosity, character, these are all areas that we don't commit enough time to thinking about. And that was, that caused me to dive into, you know, a little more into Angela Duckworth and Adam Grant and some other great thinkers as well. Brilliant. And and last question, if there was one message or lesson you've learned across your career as a leader uh, and a human performance expert, you could sort of cement into society that it might need uh, at this point in time, is there anything that stands out? Probably words I've spoken already like 20 sure. times on this, and that's, you know, uh, be humble, open and and uh, and learning focused. You know, if you if you really do, if you're truly humble and you walk through life truly open minded that you could learn from anyone and you're not focused on, you know, hierarchy or, you know, how we kind of view the world that who is more valuable but you're you, you walk through life with that beginner's mindset that it could be anyone that I you share an elevator with talk to at the you know at the checkout counter in the grocery store meet on the street that there's an opportunity to learn from anyone uh, and you are committed to improvement and growth uh, that there there is a, a happiness and a wisdom and a fulfillment as well as a, a pattern for success within them Mark, thank you so much for your time. It's, uh, I'm sure people are going to be um, is immense, taking immense value from that. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Uh, my, my pleasure. Thanks for thanks for viewing it to be even the slightest bit value additive or important. And, uh, you know, to me, it's just regurgitating what I've learned from so many other great people. So it's not it's not anything special for me. Oh, it's invaluable to me. And I wish you and the Blue Jays um, absolutely the absolute best for the rest of the season and um yeah hopefully we'll speak soon thanks so much appreciate that
What a great conversation with Mark today. I love his sincere desire to set people up for success and genuinely just want to make them better. I think the other thing that stands out with Mark is his discipline to process and that ability to stand strong in your principles and not compromise, even when the shiny allure of chasing outcomes can become very appealing. And that echoes multiple guests on this podcast so far. The importance of avoiding getting caught up in short-term noise and chasing results that might feel great today, but ultimately will impede our ability to perform tomorrow. It's a really important prism to judge your actions through and another reinforcement of that fact that your development tomorrow is what should dictate your thinking and actions today. And that's something that Mark clearly keeps front and center. Another point that resonated with me linked to the fact Mark is particularly renowned as an individual who has excelled at this is talent identification. It's clear speaking to him how important it is. And I think his sport as well, baseball, is one of the leaders in the domain when it comes to identifying talent and the professionalism of doing so in terms of the approach they take. There's obviously the famous example in terms of the film Moneyball, where Brad Pitt plays Billy Bean, who was the GM of the Oakland A's. And of course, Mark Shapiro is featured as a key character in that film. But that leads me to what I'd like to talk about today, Penguin. For me, talent identification is the bedrock of all elite organizations. In fact, if you don't get this right, I'd go as far to say that it's very hard to excel at all at the organizational level. So the million dollar or even billion dollar question is, how do you predict a superstar that isn't a superstar yet? Now in sport, coaches are on the constant lookout for the next Cristiano Ronaldo, LeBron James, Tom Brady to convert the team from aspirational contender into championship winner. And it's the same in business. Venture capitalists are constantly on the lookout for the entrepreneurs on the cusp of launching the next Facebook, Uber or Amazon. All over the world, in every field from academia to music, Thousands of hours are spent on identifying potential high performers. Many organizations spend millions to attract superstar talent, only to cough up even larger severance packages to get rid of their failures. It seems exceptionally difficult to spot future superstars in any profession. Each domain is going to have its own lingo, culture, and heritage, but the talent question is one that torments us all. Failures in talent are an absolute nightmare for so many of us, Getting it wrong leads to job losses, bankruptcy, relegation, plummeting share prices, and hundreds of millions of pounds flushed down the toilet. Whatever the domain, you all want to find the superstars before your rivals do. If you don't unearth LeBron James, Mark Zuckerberg, or J.K. Rowling, someone else will. Ultimately, you're looking for a competitive advantage. If you can identify talent more effectively than the competition, you increase the probability of producing winning results. Now, success is usually recognized at the organizational level, whether it be the inner workings of Google, SpaceX, or Goldman Sachs. But an organization is just a group of people pursuing a common goal, which is why an organization can only be as extraordinary as its people. Because people are so critical, Identifying and retaining talent is possibly the biggest challenge any organization faces. One of the best chances of ensuring our organizations excel is to make sure you have the right people pursuing the right goals. Talent identification is basically venture capital. We're making an investment. It's about people, time, and money. 
we all have limited resources, whether it's salary caps, effort, management, coaches, squad space. We must apply a filter to decide how to spend those resources on the performers you think will be most successful. Fundamentally, it's a prediction problem. The objective is to learn to predict who's going to become a gold medal performer in their respective field. Outlier organizations already know this and expend infinitely more time, effort, on screening for those future superstars. As Mark shared, talent identification pipelines must be created organically, not discovered nor outsourced to a sales team. And so many organizations pay millions to recruitment consultants who in reality aren't talent identification specialists. They're salespeople. The issue with hiring the wrong people is that you end up having to live with, fix or fire them. And it's only a matter of time before other team members inevitably suffer by compensating for their teammates' deficiencies. One weak member results in a devastating reduction in overall performance as teammates are forced to mop up errors, divert attention from their primary role, and redo work. Most organizations spend 2% of the time, effort, and finances on talent identification and 80% managing their mistakes. A team's momentum is derived from all the members performing from a place of concordance within their roles. When you increase the quality of the talent you bring into the organization, you'll receive back tenfold in terms of, say, time, money, management, morale, leadership, sick days, innovation, and most importantly, the spoils of superior performance. The overarching idea behind teamwork, full stop, is that the whole is worth more than the sum of its parts. Elite performers standing on the shoulders of each other, creating a compounding effect. That is what we're after. In almost every organization I've consulted with or worked in, I immediately see the colossal mismatch between what science knows about talent identification and the traditional manner in which most organizations approach it. So what are some concrete steps you can take to improve your ability to identify and retain concordant talent? Now, in order to introduce a step-by-step -step process to conducting world-class talent identification, you first need to understand the detriments of the traditional manner in which most people go wrong. There are some key limitations within the status quo when it comes to talent identification, starting with the belief that talent can be bought. This for me is limitation one. We like to think you can just budget in a ready-made superstar or just blink away all your problems. This is only possible if one, you're rich and you don't mind sharing your riches. Two, you stay rich. And three, no one else gets richer than you. Even then, there are no guarantees the superstar will be concordant with your specific organization. And the research suggests that organizations in sport and business are absolutely abominable at this game. The reality is that it's not even an option for most organizations. Plus, constantly buying talent is not a real edge. It's a band-aid, magic pill, or silver bullet. Inevitably, the price of the silver bullet is inflated thanks to bidding wars, and it becomes a race to the bottom. Most poaching attempts are leveraged by the recipient to bargain for higher pay from their existing employer. Then you're held to ransom by established superstars. And inevitably, organizations with bigger budgets will win this game. And there will always be someone with deeper pockets ready to pounce. You can't beat homegrown talent, whether it's the New York Yankees core four or Manchester United's class of 92 or Julian Robertson's Tiger Cubs. The ability to generate homegrown talent is a key predictor of an organization's ability to excel. 
Limitation two, the smart and competent trap. The smart and competent trap is one of the ways organizations fool themselves by hiring people with enormous, but not the right talent. When not headhunting for superstars to poach, the traditional approach to talent identification includes an intense preoccupation with qualifications. In particular, the belief that those with good grades from highly ranked universities make the best performers. Likewise, a person's prior experience in a similar role is assumed to be a predictor of being a high performer in a new one. Many weight selection heavily on such drivers. The idea that smart people with good grades are a sure thing is a bad one. Those with good grades are often shunted into respected professions like medicine, finance, or law. Just because you've got the smarts does not mean you can perform in a role or that you should. These individuals have a set of strengths that will enable them to compete in most professions. However, being smart helps people to grind, cuff, or blag their way through, but not necessarily excel. Unless their interests and values also align with that specific role, they'll end up flat, minimum effective dose in everything, and dependent on external motivation to prompt them into action. They're reliant on carrots and sticks versus an internal compulsion to excel. Also, the risk is that you turn away a lot of potential elite performers whose concordance with the role was not reflected or ignited by academia. Likewise, being qualified is not necessarily predictive of superior performance. Just because a person did the same job somewhere else doesn't mean they should do it for the rest of their life or for this organization. The key point here is this. You can train competency in a certain role, but you can't train psychological firepower. Possessing the right competencies, qualifications, smarts, or experiences is not enough to achieve results unless the psychological factors are also right. The level of performance ultimately achieved is going to be proportionate to the performer's intrinsic fit with the role. This is what's going to ignite their psychological firepower and unlock the confidence, resilience, motivation, creativity we all know drive elite performance. Limitation three, superficial screening. In most organizations, screening tends to be haphazard and based on chaotic superficial scans instead of rigorous examination of a candidate's strengths, interests, and values in relation to the specific requirements of the role. CEOs and hiring managers commonly hand out jobs expecting elite performance without acquiring any evidence of the characteristics, the strengths, interests, and values that we know accurately predict elite performance. What's worse is these managers who've conducted superficial scans then have the audacity to moan about how their employees don't perform to the level they expect. Their natural next step is to implement leadership training, management workshops, team building, and morale boosters to motivate and appease weak talent identification. Instead, they should preemptively allocate the time and effort and thought required to screen and make sure they have the right people chasing the right goals in the first place. Limitation four, ego. Too many organizations complain about not having enough talent. Many talent identification programs are blinded by egotistical assumptions about how special or unique the role they are hiring for is. That's just an excuse. 
Talent is not your problem. It's your approach to finding talent that is your problem. The challenges of talent identification stem from a weak strategy, not a lack of talent. Talent exists everywhere. And it is the owner, CEO, or manager's responsibility to identify, develop, and retain it. I don't care if you're trying to identify potential Premier League footballers, surgeons, or pop idols. As we begin to map out what excellence looks like in terms of talent identification, you're going to start to see where your talent identification process is potentially leaking or breaking down. Limitation five, the interview problem. Interviews are a painful process you nearly all must go through at some time in your lives, whether it's giving them or receiving them. When asked the question, the interviewer has read in some manual called 50 questions to guarantee great hires. The candidate will usually respond with a classic uh, that they've read in how to ace interviews. What is your biggest weakness? The questioner will say, setting a trap by utilizing a cliche to find out how humble and honest you are. Well, I'm a bit of a perfectionist is sufficient evidence that the candidate has at least read how to ace interviews and turns the weakness into a positive. It's very often stock question upon stock question with stock answer after stock, uh, with stock answer after stock answer. Behind the scenes, it becomes a futile competition between hiring managers as to who can come up with the most creative curveball question. You can't spot superstars by sitting behind a desk chatting. In business, too many are hired based on talking a good game. Most talent identification consists of a chit-chat instead of a robust, repeatable, scientific methodology. The problem is that talking about performing is not performing. We can bullshit talking, but you can't bullshit doing. There are very few roles where the ability to interview well is causally related to superior job performance beyond the general ability to communicate. For me, this is where Ralph Waldo Emerson's famous quote strikes home for me. What you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. We have all at some point been forced to work with the individual who is incompetent and yet presumably smashed the interview before ending up a disaster in action. Likewise, you've almost certainly let gold slip through your fingers over the years. The person who was unconvincing in the interview, who turns out to be a wizard on the job. Unless the job is to be interviewed, why place so much isolated emphasis on one process? The transfer to on-the-job performance is so poorly linked to actual performance. So if interviews are useless, and pretty much all the available evidence shows this to be true, why do we insist on using them? The answer is that we love a good story and interviews provide a more interesting and memorable narrative about candidates. The issue is these narratives are highly inaccurate and riddled with bias. We are really good at making up stories to confirm our own subjective and often useless first impressions. Plus, interviews are easy and they're the way it's always been done. It's much harder to do the thinking required to produce and operate an evidence-based talent identification process. So most don't bother, which is amazing for us. Limitation six, bias. I want you to imagine two police officers sat by the side of the motorway. They're using their eyeballs to measure the speed of passing vehicles. He's going too fast, shouts one officer. No, he wasn't, says the other. It's absurd to think about ticketing drivers based on this approach. 
but it's done day in and day out during most screening processes. And perhaps this is the biggest obstacle with talent. We are riddled with biases about what drives success. Too many people use only their feelings, observations, judgments, and life experiences to evaluate candidates. And it's akin to the scene in Moneyball, which Mark was featured in during his time at the Cleveland Indians, where the head of talent spouts pearls of wisdom, such as ugly girlfriend means no confidence. It would be funny, except that this sort of thing is far too common. Bias has allowed smart, well-groomed, good-looking people with polished CVs who know the right people to hack the system, which is great for them. Our education system is designed to manufacture such people. Inevitably, they rat race their way to excellence that inevitably eludes them and the organizations they serve. There are a whole host of biases that make us awful at predicting future successes. There are four main culprits, though. The first one is natural talent bias. Here, you tend to grossly overestimate ability if you believe there are signs of natural talent, despite the fact that you all like to think that you're prefer hardworking strivers, you'll genuinely opt for those you perceive to have natural gifts. Two is the recency effect. This describes how you place more weight on the last thing you saw, which is why rock stars always save the best song for last. And we leave thinking that the whole gig was great. In sport, the recency effect is rife after big tournaments, particularly World Cups. You'll see the player that played well for two or three games transfer for hundreds of millions. Three, the halo effect. Here, those who start strong are overestimated in the future. So for the performer who starts well, the impression is more likely to stick, even if performance subsequently drops off. Four, we have confirmation bias. This occurs when you look for proof especially when there isn't any, to confirm your first opinion on a matter. For example, in football, if the talent scout likes a player they're scouting and that player loses possession of the ball, the scout might describe the player as positive or adventurous for you know trying to unlock the defence. The scout that didn't favour that same player observing that same action would describe that behaviour as sloppy, irresponsible or greedy. To optimise talent identification, we must shift the pendulum from subjective, superficial, and biased, good grades, big bench press, towards a more objective, evidence-based approach. We need tools, data, and facts to prove beyond all reasonable doubt that the individuals we're bringing into our organization possess the strengths, interests, and values required to excel in it. If you're asking someone to do something challenging for your organization, you need to take the time to ensure they align with and can internalize the meaningful rationale for giving their all when doing so. Archaic organizations that rely on interviews, subjective opinion, biases, and tick-the-box qualifications will be annihilated by the organization that uses the objective, concordance-focused, evidence-based approach that I'm going to talk to you about in our next session. The aim will be to unpack exactly what world-class talent identification looks like. I want to wrap up with saying a massive thank you to Mark. He's recognized as an iconic leader in baseball, but his ability is more broadly recognized across all elite sports, especially in North America. I'm so, so grateful to have him take the time out to speak with us. And Mark, I'll hopefully see you in Florida soon. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with us today. I love this topic of human performance and excellence, and I've been engaged in it neurotically for the last 20 years. It's a sincere privilege to have the opportunity to share my knowledge, network, and learnings with you. 
Now go and put the principles to work. Make sure you let us know what resonates. Reach out with questions. Blind spots, we've got you covered. Remember, excellence is just a series of days repeated over and over again. Now go and win your day. In 2021, I published my first book, Accelerating Excellence. If you're finding the conversations and information on this podcast useful, you might want a physical reference point and to gain even deeper awareness of the concepts discussed. The book's actually more of an operation manual containing more detail with a step-by-step -step guide on how to implement all this stuff so you can get maximum benefit, which was one of my main motivations in writing it. Yes, I want the podcast and the book to be inspiring and entertaining, but it was non-negotiable for me to make sure that the listener or reader is provided with a structure and direction in terms of actually putting this stuff to work. The book's called Accelerating Excellence. It's a number one international bestseller. And if you're moving from more than just interest towards implementation, I think you'll really enjoy it. Like everything I do, the book is evidence-based, but practice-led, drawing on my experience, working with some of the world's most elite, exclusive, high-performing teams and individuals. It's filled with highly actionable strategies you can apply today to become better tomorrow. If this sounds like something from you, see the link in description where you can download six chapters of the book for free in either audio or digital format. It's also available to purchase on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and at your local bookstore. I hope you enjoy. By now, we all know the importance of a winning mindset. We're bombarded with elite performers telling us that mindset's what separates the best from the rest. That if we want to be successful, we need to be more confident, resilient, and motivated. And of course, when panic strikes, we need to calm down, relax, or chill out. Great, we get it. But the question is how? We're given this guidance with almost zero practical advice in terms of how to achieve it. Where can we actually go to develop that world-class mindset? What's the back squat for resilience, the bench press for confidence, and the bicep curl for positive thinking? Well, that's why I created the Mindset app. Through the app, you'll gain access to the psychological skills training used by world champion athletes, special forces operators, and some of the world's most successful traders and investors. The reality is these guys pay me a fortune to help them get this right. But the thing is, these skills are equally, if not more important, for the aspiring athlete, executive, or operator. And that's exactly why I created this app. I want these tools and training available to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Mindset is a skill, and like any skill, it can be developed with the right strategy and effort. The tools and techniques are designed in a way that will literally rewire your brain. Like learning to ride a bike or drive a car, all the techniques are designed with creating a high-performing, self-regulating U2.0. Every strategy in the Mindset app is backed by empirical research. There's 10-minute emotional control training exercises that have been shown to increase your ability to overcome detrimental decision-making biases by up to 80%. In another study, just three weeks of executing visualization training led to 34% improvements in performance. Another research group found 50% greater improvements in the rate of learning. And just a few weeks of performing visualization led to 22% reductions in anxiety and 21% increases in confidence. These numbers are phenomenal. And I've never met an elite performer in any domain that can afford to be missing out on this type of edge. What I love most is that we've structured everything so that you don't need to carve out an extra hour in your day to get this done. Small bite-sized chunks of five to 10 minutes are all it takes. In fact, 
I'd only encourage you to use the tool on your commute, in the sauna, at the end of your working day, or bolt it onto the end of your gym session. Any dead time you have can now immediately be transformed to deliver you extreme performance gains. My goal is to remove every possible obstacle to your development. And with that in mind, the basic package is completely free. Visit the link in description and sign up for our pre-launch free emotional control, visualization, and performance routine programs. I really hope you enjoy.